Exodus chapter 20 as we wrap up the Ten Commandments this morning. And uh, it's only taken us six months to get through the Ten Commandments. So we're looking at every letter of every word within the 21 verses. Obviously I'm being facetious because we started in Exodus chapter 1 and worked our way to Exodus chapter 20 where God appears to his people on top of Mount Sinai that he may speak to them and give them the Ten Commandments. Now, as we have said numerous times, if there's any portion of Scripture that would have to be recognized by almost everyone, it would have to be the Ten Commandments. There's no doubt that John 3.16 is the most popular verse of the Bible, but the Ten Commandments would have to be a second, a close second. Though people know of the Ten Commandments, know that they're important, and they know that they are really uh, crucial and key to the Judeo-Christian faith, many cannot recite the Ten Commandments, including many Christians. They don't know them. And in fact, when we have challenged people, and we have used the Ten Commandments as an icebreaker, asking them, listen, I'll give you $10 if you can name all Ten Commandments in order for me right here, right now. I personally have never had anyone take my money. But when we were confronting individuals and they couldn't recite the Ten Commandments, even those who say that they've had some kind of church background in one regard or another, when we asked them to name the brands of ten different beers They could do it without hesitation. It really showed us something. And so I felt that it was necessary to go through the Ten Commandments as a church, but to take you from the beginning of Exodus into chapter 20, because God said that the narrative that preceded the giving of the Ten Commandments was equally important to this moment within the story. Notice with me in verses 1 and 2, as God says, and he begins to speak to his people there at Mount Sinai, two million people are around this mountain, and he says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That was our narrative. God had brought them to this point and now was giving them the Ten Commandments. Why was he doing that? Chapter 19 tells us that he wanted Israel to be a special treasure, a special possession of himself. He wanted them to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And it was going to be the pillars of the Ten Commandments that this nation was going to be based upon. And anyone who has studied the Ten Commandments in any kind of detail will discover very quickly how important it is for the integration and the, and the health of any society to have these basic, I'll call them these for this particular portion, core values as a society. And as you grow closer to God, these core values become more prominent and the society becomes a healthy society. If you move farther away from God, you discover that the society's health begins to decline very quickly. Illustration, the United States of America. As we have radically been disposing of the Ten Commandments everywhere that we find them in public places, removing them everywhere from the classroom, 
all the way to our judicial system, we discover that our nation continues to go into a steady decline. Is it simply because we are removing the Ten Commandments? No, that's not the argument that I'm making, but the removal of the Ten Commandments is a symptom of a greater problem. And that problem is, is that we have to understand why the world objects to the Ten Commandments. It's not the last six that they object to. And find they, they find nothing objectionable within those six that have to do with the relationship between each other, the relationship between people in a society. Their objection stems from the first four. When it requires our submission to a holy God and to exalt Him as the one, the only true God that there is. That's their objection. And that's why they must sterilize our nation of these things because it is a constant reminder that there's a holy God that people are going to be accountable to. But the Bible clearly teaches us that if our relationship with God is not where it is meant to be, our relationship with one another is not going to be where it is meant to be. It's a principle found in the Old Testament. It's a principle found in the New Testament. And today we are continuously trying to legislate relationships based upon a atheistic worldview. And it continues to fail time and time again because these things cannot be simply legislated. It must also play upon the person's individual conscience, require them to interact with one another in a certain manner. But once a person's conscience is basically sanitized of God, it forms a vacuum. And that vacuum within the person is filled then by themselves. That's what we see happening. The farther we get away from God in our society, the more it's all about us as individuals, isn't it? It's all about me. I'm convinced that if we created a church saying it's, it's all about you, it would, people would flood into it. In fact, atheists are gathering together around the nation in what would, would resemble church services, but the elevation is, and the exaltation is not that of God, it's of themselves. Now think about how it's opposed to each other, that if we are all about ourselves, relationships with others are going to become very difficult. Think about that for a moment. If we are all about ourselves, relationships are going to become very difficult with other people. Why? Because there must be give and take. There must be compromise. There, there cannot be that absorption of it's all about me and this relationship will work as long as you acknowledge that it's all about me and do everything that I want you to do. It's ridiculous. You cannot have an individual thinking it's all about me and also having them within healthy relationships with others. This is the problem with so many marriages. It's the problem with so many families. It's the problem with so many work relationships, etc., but God saw this. God knew how he designed us, and it must first become all about him. Then it can progress to become about each other. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. And notice that the farther we get away from God, the worse relationships with one another becomes. And so as we come and conclude our time together, we are looking at the last three commandments.
the 8th, 9th, and 10th, starting in verse 15. And we have looked at the other ones in detail, and now we come to the last three that God will then close this portion, this section of the book of Exodus, after giving the last three commandments to the people. But let's read up until that point. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the sixth day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your sons, your daughters, your male servants and female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and them, and rested then on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first four having to do with God. The last six having to do with our fellow man. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. The eighth commandment, thou shall not steal. The word steal there in the Hebrew is a word that is used very specifically here at this point, ganab. It means to steal any possession of another or a person of another. It can be applied to both, and it's one of the most exhaustive words for stealing that can be used in the Hebrew language. It is a word that shows us that personal property is permitted to be halved by an individual. There are many Christians today that are wrestling with this idea of what I call reckless abandonment. That means that God has called all Christians to abandon all personal possessions and just radically follow the Lord Jesus Christ. God may some call some to do that, but the Bible itself does not prohibit the ownership of possessions and materials. It's not wrong to own possessions. It's wrong when possessions own you. And so God is making it very clear here that personal possessions is not forbidden or prohibited in the Bible. However, though, the New Testament introduces us to the idea of stewardship. That as a Christian, I must understand that all that I do have is of the Lord. 
It's His. And I must use what He has given me for His glory. And this should then dictate our giving. It should dictate our generosity because we understand that all that we have are His. And I'm a firm believer that before we can handle our possessions correctly, we must first adopt that understanding, embrace that understanding, to understand that it's all of the Lord's. He has given me all of these things, so how He would have me apply these things is up to Him. He's not only the Lord of my life, He's the Lord of my stuff. And possessions, again, are not wrong as long as those possessions do not possess you. And you understand that God has called you to be a steward of these things. Historians have looked back at the time that the Ten Commandments were given, and they began to look at the societies around where Israel would be established. They were looking at established societies that had laws and civil ordinances in place, and they discovered that stealing was a crime in all these other nations, and it also included the misappropriation of anything and embezzlement, things that we talk about today where we take something of someone else's that doesn't belong to us and we use it for ourselves. And the remedy, it was exactly the same, that they had to make restitutions for what they had taken. So a general principle that can be applied to almost any society and welcomed by any society. That personal property must be respected. Once that is uh, no longer the case, you begin to move into that place of criminal anarchy where individuals can think that they can take whatever Uh, you have at any time simply because they are stronger than you and to do so. Whenever you had hoarding nations throughout history, if you watched what they did, they would go into a land, they would kill the men usually first and then even the male children and then they would take the women and then they would use the women for procreation and then they would take what? All the spoil and the booty and this is the way they accumulated wealth solidifying their positions of dominance within that area. What curtails all that is when we make stealing illegal, the inappropriated uh, appropriation of um, people's possessions, goods, or other persons. This would include stealing another person from a person, and that would be, of course, um, kidnapping. So we see how vital this commandment is to the health of any society. Nobody would say that for a society, stealing would, being legalized would be a good thing. The Bible's remedy for stealing is maybe different than what you would anticipate. For Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's so much in that verse. Paul is basically saying that the accumulation of wealth should be done through honest, hard labor. Having a dynamic work ethic as a Christian, I think, is imperative. And in fact, if you want to stand out in our current society today, have a strong work ethic. 
If you talk to men or women who are in charge of hiring for their companies, you will discover that, yes, they have very well-educated applicants and resumes before them. However, though, in their interview process, they discover that a work ethic is not there. And as a result, that, that particular candidate isn't nearly as appealing than someone who has less of an education but a dynamic work ethic. I truly believe that the success that I had was not due to my education, because I didn't really have one, but due to the work ethic that was instilled by my father. My father had a dynamic work ethic, and I think one of the things as parents that we must demonstrate for our children is our work ethic. Now, when we demonstrate our work ethic as believers in Jesus Christ, we must show them what is priority within the demonstration of that work ethic. Yes, we must work hard, but never at the sacrifice of the things of God. Never at those things should we dismiss or should we become indifferent to simply because we want to display a work ethic. One of the occasions that I had after just recently being promoted at the company that I worked for, I started noticing that the job was causing me to work more and more hours, and maybe you're in the same boat. Yeah, they promised me a promotion, but after I took it, I realized that after the number of hours that I am required to work divided by my salary package, I'm making less than minimum wage. (laughs) There's a lot of people in that situation. But in my case, it was imposing upon my ability to attend church. And I was conflicted over that. I was convicted over that. And I began to pray and ask the Lord, what should he have me to do? I didn't want to jeopardize my job because I needed, the, of course, the income, just like all of you do. But at the same time, I knew I wasn't honoring God properly by making him number one. And so I took a step out in faith, and I went to the president of the company, and I said to him, I will be willing to do whatever you ask of me, but may I leave early enough to get to church on time on Wednesdays that I may attend my church midweek service? And he says, well, what time do you think you'd like to leave? And I said, if I could leave by 6.30, it's not far. I could get there in time. That would be great. I'll even come back if it's required. But I really just want that time to go and to spend some time at church. And this, to me, this was taking a huge step out because I didn't feel like I deserved the job that I had, but I did feel that it needed to keep God number one. And I was possibly putting things on the line. I didn't know how he was going to react. He wasn't a believer. And so he looked down into his calendar, and then he looked up at me, and he goes, I'm not sure this is going to work. And I'm like, well, here it is. Dina, I got promoted last week and got fired today. Went well. And Dina remembers his story. And he looked down in his calendar, looked back up, he says, this is not going to work. If you go at 6.30, you won't be able to have dinner before church. Why don't you take off at 5? Take the evening. I don't care what anyone says to you. You cut out, enjoy your church service, and uh, just give me 110% when you can. I gave him 130%. But I put God first, and God looked favorably and gave me grace and gave me favor with my employer to be able to honor him first. Our work ethic must be important, but always under the prioritize 
that it shouldn't interfere with my relationship with God. If it does, then work has become a problem. It's become an idol. And God is going to have difficulty with that. But notice here that stealing in any society, when it becomes commonplace, if you look over the course of history, you will discover that society begins to unravel when stealing becomes a problem. Stealing is a huge problem in the United States of America today. And one of the areas that theft is so prevalent is in the workplace. Not only time, taking time from the employer because you are spending your time doing other things rather than working for him, that's stealing. But taking materials from that job. Now, in retail, we are discovering that an idea of theft in retail is credit card theft where employees of retail stores are taking the numbers of credit cards and using them for themselves. In 2011, identity theft cost American people $1.52 billion. Shoplifting is another very common theft occurrence. Listen to this. Each year, $13 billion worth of good is stolen at retailers each year here in the United States of America. That's $35 million a day. These are secular websites, secular statistics. There are approximately 27 million shoplifters, one in every 11 people. One, two, three, four. Really? One in every 11 people have committed the crime of shoplifting, according to these statistics. Theft is a huge problem. There is no longer respect for personal property. When those were surveyed about how people felt about theft and what deterred them, the number one deterrent was they were afraid to get caught. Not that uh, stealing was wrong, But they were more afraid to get caught and suffer the ramifications. The second deterrent that people claimed uh, that uh, kept them from stealing was they were afraid that those whom, whom they stole from would retaliate. And number three, and this is the one I can't believe that someone said that made the survey top three list, is the reason they didn't steal is because they had no need of what was in front of them. Think about that for a minute. But no one said that it was fundamentally wrong. And no one even came close to saying that it is a sin before God. In the New Testament, we have this incredible account of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And everybody knows that little Zacchaeus wanted to watch the Lord enter into into the city and couldn't do so because he was short, vertically challenged. So he climbed a sycamore tree to watch Jesus come in, and as Jesus passed underneath, he called up to Zacchaeus and wanted to dine with him. Well, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a chief tax collector in that area, and he was hated by the people. And Jesus spending time with Zacchaeus was scandalous. This was it. I mean, this was the worst person that he could have ate with, that is, Jesus ate with that night. But in the course of that conversation, the Lord tells us that salvation had come to the home because he was a son of Abraham. And Zacchaeus, moved by his faith in Christ, 
desired to repent of what he had stolen as the chief uh, tax collector, who was allowed by the Roman authorities not only to collect taxes owed, but to pad it a little bit for his own personal wealth. And yet he felt so convicted by that after meeting Jesus that he repented of it and said to Jesus, I will restore four times over what I have taken. Can you imagine the IRS contacting you? Saying, look, we've repented. And we've been noticing that we have been ripping you off for years. And we want to give you fourfold back. From the very first day that you started paying taxes until now, we are so sorry for what we have taken. Christians, we are meant to pay our taxes. We are meant to legally pay our taxes each and every year. Just the taxes that are owed. So we should be uh, wise about how we prepare our taxes. Don't cheat. That is stealing. Prepare them honestly and trust God for the provision of those taxes. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. I know your gut wrenches when you think about how our tax money is spent. But allow the Lord to deal with that. You just do what God has asked you to do. Be honest. Be uh, blameless before the world. And trust the Lord. And trust the Lord. But we don't have to pay one more penny that is owed. So inquire of tax professionals that will help you legally and honestly pay only that which is due and you are required to pay. But that is the course of correction. If you have stole, the process is twofold. Number one, repent. And number two, make restitution. Number one, repent unto God, confess to that person, and then make restitution for those things that you have taken, meaning restore them unto the person in whom you've deprived of those things. The ninth commandment found in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When we consider this particular commandment, it often gets lost within the broad manner in which often it is interpreted and and implied. When we look at this commandment, God is actually instructing that false accusations should not be brought against your neighbor within the court of law, accusing them falsely before a judge. Every aspect of this verse and every word that is used here in the in the uh, Hebrew sense, has forensic connotations to it. It is meant to be applied within a court of law, bringing someone to court wrongfully. As one wrote, the Hebrew term here used here has very for, uh, forensic connotations to it. That is, that they relate to the proceedings of a trial court. Furthermore, the language here points out particular type of false statements. That is specifically that of a false accusation. This prohibition is about wrongful prosecution, specifically coming before a court to initiate a trial and wrongfully accuse another person. But many who have taught this verse 
believe, and I believe that this is partially correct, broaden it to such things as lying, slander, silence, gossip, backbiting, and vilification. Now, all those things are condemned in other places of the Bible, but here we must understand what God is trying to say within this commandment. Now, all of these commandments have what I call the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is the specific application and interpretation that God meant for that commandment in its original context. The spirit of the law is then articulated and broadened by other verses within the Bible. We know lying and slander and silence and gossip and backbiting and vilification are all wrong, but this isn't necessarily the text that I would bring them to to substantiate that. But let's understand what God is actually saying here. Again, if stealing became a norm within society, the society would become very unhealthy very quickly. On the opposite end of a criminal act, you have a judicial system. And a judicial system, even in our nation today, the cornerstone of our judicial system is based upon the eyewitness testimony of another, isn't it? And if that eyewitness testimony is falsified, if it is a lie, then that judicial system can start to become ineffective. And God knew that if this was the case, that a society would begin to crumble very quickly. Now, it is a known fact that everybody lies. In fact, it has been substantiated that each person, every single day, consciously or unconsciously, usually lies three times a day, even though they may not uh, uh, think that or agree with that. And this means um, exaggeration. It means uh, you know, uh, telling a white lie. In fact, when people lie, 92% of the time, they are lying to save face, meaning they don't want to look bad, so they lie to get past that. Or they, uh, 98% of the time, they, keep, they lie to keep from offending someone else. Husbands, let me give you an illustration. Your wife goes shopping, and she's all excited about those clothes in which she purchases. And you know how wives are. They want to make sure that you approve of it. Not financially, they could care less there. Um, But how it looks on them. And one of the worst Questions a husband can get confronted with, a Christian husband, who is committed to telling the truth in, in and out, day by day, is when they are confronted by that question by the one in whom they love so dearly their wives, do these pants make me look fat? It's just like, it's all, it's like time just stops. <laughs> now what do I say here? And the little angel appears here. Tell her the truth. It's not her pants, it's her body. No, I can't go there. What? Holy cow. And the devil, just tell her what she wants to hear. What do you care? You're married to her anyways. You're not going anywhere. So what do you do in that kind of situation? See, lying can be at any different level. See, I'm not going to tell you. You guys are all like, all right, pastor, this is the one thing I'm going to write down. You, you have to pray it through for yourself. Dina has asked me to be honest, even when it's brutally honest. So she has given me a free pass. 
So I pray that your wives are as gracious as mine. But that being said, lying can come in many different forms. But what God is specifying here is so much greater than, and not that lying isn't appalling, it is. God hates lying. But he understands that if this bearing of false witness takes place within a society, the society soon is going to start to crumble. And it's very important that we understand that. In 2001, an extensive survey was done. It's the last one that has been done in this regard. It was done by two different universities to try to correlate and to confirm each other's reports and findings. In 2001, and this is prior to 9-11, in 2001, 23% of Americans had expressed confidence in our judicial system. Most believe today it is much lower. When the justice system begins to fail, the society begins to fail. We have historical models of that throughout history. When the justice system is not respected, it no longer becomes the deterrent that it is meant to be. The testimony of our justice system, the cornerstone of our justice system, is the eyewitness account. It is interesting to me that as we continuously move away from the Ten Commandments being displayed in our courthouses across America, the worse things become within our justice system. There's very little confidence. And, and, and those who work as a police officer or a lawyer or a judge, they know this, that it's not fair. It's not accessible for all people. It isn't blind justice as the, that the statue would portray as she is blinded in holding the scales in each of her hand. It, it, it isn't that way anymore. There is an equality because it is fallen, sinful man now governing himself, governing herself, and then submitting to a legal process. The Bible calls us to, as Christians to submit to our legal authorities, to police officers, etc., and to our ruling governors, and to respect the law of the land, and that's what we should do. If that law violates what God has said clearly and specifically, then we are to obey God, but not in a violent manner, but in a manner that would represent God properly. But I say to you that I am very concerned that as I did research just quickly this week, it's not only here in America. Australia has an 11% confidence rate in their judicial system as of two years ago. England, it's the same thing. As our judicial systems begin to fail, our society would begin to fail. And we think of the injustices, and God knew that. And God wanted honesty and integrity to be the cornerstone of our judicial system. It wanted to protect the innocent and convict and punish the guilty, which in a lot of cases in our nation has been switched, where we seem to be punishing the innocent and letting the guilty go free. It's, hasn't, it's no longer the deterrent that it has once, once was. 
When we come to the last of the Ten Commandments, the tenth one, God looks now into the heart of a person. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Now, obviously, we are writing and reading from a contextual period in time when these things were of great value to to yourself and to your neighbors. Servants, donkeys, and oxes. Today, they're not the temptation that they once were. I've never driven by an ox and said, gotta have it. Or a donkey, or even a male or female servant. But the idea of coveting is not an idea that we talk or discuss much anymore here in America because we don't believe that it is present within our society when we are so far from the truth. Coveting means to strongly to desire, to lust after, and to take pleasure in. The most historic understanding of this Hebrew word that is used here for coveting means to pant after. Pant after. Meaning that we want something so bad that we will go to any length to get it. Now this deals with the heart of man. This deals with the heart of woman. And how covetousness works, it works like this. The eyes look upon an object, the mind admires it, the will goes over to it, and the body moves to possess it. Just because you have not taken the final step does not mean you are not in the process of coveting right now. Whatever your neighbor may have, it is a localized area, meaning it's something you see daily and that you want and must have. And you'll do anything to go and to possess it. Coveting. James tells us very clearly in his epistle that all sin begins in the mind of the individual. It begins as a thought. Listen to what he says in James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Later in his epistles, he goes one step further to identify how these desires and passions actually cause rifts or strife within a society. Listen to what he says in James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, you so, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. As one commentator wrote, this commandment deals with a person's inner heart and shows that none of the previous nine commandments can be observed merely from an external or formal act. Every inner instinct that leads to the act is also included and renounced. Today in our society, the marketing is absolutely geared to feed coveting. You want it, you gotta have it. And not only do you want it and you gotta have it, but we're gonna make it as easily as possible for you to obtain it. This coveting 
has now manifested itself within, within the lives of individuals under the guise of what we call immediate gratification. We see it, we want it, we got to have it, and we're going to do all that we can to get it, no matter what it is. Marketing sees that and plays upon the sinful nature of man, desiring and coveting, they just got to have something, And then they make it as easy as possible. Here's a free credit card. Here is this or that to allow you to obtain what you want to obtain. Don't think about the cost now and what it's going to entail going forward. Just get it. Just do it now. What's one of the favorite things salespeople have to do? You better do it now or it's going to be too late, right? Things are going fast. Jump on the deal now. They are playing upon that thinking of coveting. God says, eliminate that thinking. Now, how do you eliminate coveting? Paul tells us how we do it. Coveting and covetousness is eliminated by contentment. Contentment. If I'm content with what I have, then coveting becomes less formidable in my life. But how is being content obtained and maintained? This is, again, where Americans have it so wrong today, and maybe you do too. Is contentment gained by choice, meaning I choose to be content? Or is it true what the world says, that contentment is gained by consumption? Meaning, if I just get this last thing, I'm going to be content. If I just get this last thing, I'm going to be content. If I just get this thing, I'm going to be content. Consumption. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. There's your baseline. There's your standard. Food and clothing. It says nothing about the new iPhone says absolutely nothing about the certain automobile that you would like to drive. Paul says that my contentment will be satisfied with food and clothing. So with this statement, Paul's contentment isn't satisfied by consumption because if it was, Paul could never draw the line at food and clothing. It was a choice. It was a choice. I am going to choose to be content with what I have. Now, don't get me wrong. I said this one time in an open group, and I was rebutted by, well, contentment leads to complacency and apathy. That's a gross misunderstanding of contentment. It's a gross misunderstanding, meaning if I'm content, I'm just not going to go any further. I'm not talking about complacency and apathy, meaning where I just don't care if I do anything more. I'm talking about being content with what I have as a believer in Jesus Christ. Contentment is a choice. It is not based upon consumption. Once you learn that, you will be able to deal with the reality of coveting. We come to the end. The people have heard the Ten Commandments, and we read here in verse 18, 
when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What's the deterrent from sin? A healthy reverence, fear of the Lord. One of the, the greatest deterrent of sin. He has demonstrated, he has shown himself to his people in this way that they may reverence him, that they may fear him. And they have. Moses, uh, listen, whatever you say, it's a go. Just don't have God come again because he will kill us. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Jesus Christ, when he came here on this earth, when challenged by those who were of the religious sect, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the lawyers that were with them, often asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of them all, referring to the Ten Commandments? Which out of the ten should we elevate and exalt among, or above the others? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is not even found here. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is equal to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Within these, all the laws of the prophet hang. Isn't it interesting, that same diagram, that same illustration, that we must be right with God first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It is not love yourself and then love your neighbor. It's love God and then love your neighbor. That is the mandate of the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in moral obligation for those who believe in Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. But the key is to fulfill all of them is to love Jesus, to love God with all of your heart, that this world pales in comparison, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. As we conclude our series 10, looking at the Ten Commandments.